You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. And I am Dr. Timothy Bailey, sitting in for Dr. Stephen Edelman. How does structured self-monitoring of blood glucose benefit the patient with type 2 diabetes? Joining us to discuss the benefit of structured self-monitoring of glucose in patients with type 2 diabetes is founder of the Behavioral Diabetes Institute in San Diego, California, Dr. William Polanski. Dr. Polanski, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks much. Glad to be here. Well, this is a really important. It's an expensive technology, and I think I've seen patients use and also physicians use it very poorly, and the patients sometimes get the blame. And in this country, there's a lot of patients that are defined as poorly controlled. And how, how big a problem is this? Well, we think it's a pretty big problem, and we know that uh, if we just look at patients with type 2 diabetes in America, approximately half uh, have an A1C above 7%. So we know there's a lot of people who are struggling with relatively poor control of their diabetes. Diabetes is such an intensive uh, information condition that even healthcare providers have a hard time dealing with this. Uh, I think you make a very good point, and especially if we consider that, you know, as you know, most people with type 2 diabetes never see us. Uh, and then the chronologists like yourself, mostly they're uh, treated in primary care, and our poor primary care physicians are so overwhelmed with other responsibilities and time constraints that to take the time to uh, have chronic care appointments and really focus on diabetes and the degree to which it needs to be focused on is just really difficult, really difficult. Yeah, you, you've recently published a trial, and uh, this trial actually takes approach that's organized, that's planned, and you call it, I think it's structured self-monitoring of blood glucose, and could you tell us more about what this involves? As you probably know, there's been a series of studies now that have suggested that blood glucose monitoring in the population of type 2 patients who are not on insulin probably isn't worthwhile and doesn't really seem to help people to improve their glycemic control. And we were always stunned and surprised by those results, although it made some sense that if we were asking people to monitor their blood sugars, but in fact patients had no idea what to do with this information, and physicians rarely saw it or had the time or the expertise to respond to those numbers, of course it makes sense that just the uh, the idea of checking blood sugars and no one's using the data isn't going to be useful. And so we developed this uh, study to really take a look at, well, what if we do something a little more sensible? What if we say, let's look at the potential power of blood glucose monitoring when both patients and physicians actually do know what to do with this information and take action? So having an approach that actually might be something that uh, that would help the situation, would benefit the patient, and also benefit us is, is, is a really great advance. Could you tell us how specific, more specifically how the study was designed? Sure. Um, well, there were uh, several parts. The most important part, it was all based on this um, very, very simple paper tool so that there would be a, a very uh, easy-to-read, quick, easy-to-read visual display of blood glucose data. The idea was rather than asking 
patients to test, oh, say, once a day or twice a day over some interval, um, we said, let's ask folks to just do, do an intensive blood glucose snapshot so that every quarter we were going to asking them to do a, um, a seven-point blood glucose profile for three days in a row, so seven blood sugars, three days in a row, and to record this on this, this simple little paper tool so that you could quickly see, um, uh, what, do we need to be worried about hypoglycemia over these three days? Do we need to be worried about fasting hyperglycemia? And or do we need to be worrying about postprandial hyperglycemia? And again, we trained physicians and patients so they could quickly look at this graphical display of data, and this is what patients would record, so they could quickly and easily see what's the element you need to focus on and what do you need to do about it. So you're asking people to check themselves more frequently, less often. That's fantastic. Yeah, and so in reality, we actually, if you look at the number of blood glucose trips, of course, that, that entails, actually, that's less than what it would be typically recommended because it would be 21 blood sugars every three months. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Timothy Bailey, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Polonsky, and we're discussing the benefit of structured self-monitoring of blood glucose in patients with type 2 diabetes. Well, that's a very interesting finding that you, you mentioned. You alluded to that in this study, the patients are checking themselves more frequently but less often. And then you, you started to say something about maybe they were checking themselves less frequently overall. Uh, that's right. I mean, we're again, we're asking people to... Uh, we didn't give any patients directions, not in the intervention group or in our control condition, about what they should do aside from the specific intervention, this quarterly testing seven times a day for three days in a row. So what we see is that uh, actually over the course of time in our intervention group, as well as in our control condition where there were no instructions, we saw that people began to check actually less over the course of this year-long study. What was the primary outcome of the study? Well, the primary outcome we were looking at was glycemic change over time. Um, again, we were comparing this intervention group compared to a control condition where uh, in, in both groups, everyone was actually given free meters, free supplies, uh, point-of-care A1C testing was provided to all primary care practices in the, who were involved in, in the study in both groups. And uh, what we found was in our intervention, we actually found that in both groups, there was a significant drop in A1C over the course of the study, but there was a significantly larger drop in the intervention group. Um, in the Using an intent-to-treat analysis, we saw an additional drop of about 0.3% uh, drop in A1C. Uh, when we did a per-protocol analysis looking specifically at let's look at those patients who actually were moderately successful in, in being compliant with what we actually asked them to do in terms of the blood glucose monitoring and recording, we saw an A1C, a difference between the groups of 0.5% uh, A1C drop. And I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there was even a finding that in the patients that followed it per-protocol, they even had a lower frequency of checks. Well, actually, the, in the entire intervention group, we did see a drop, a further drop of blood glucose monitoring over time. And, and by the way, I should mention, I think that the takeaway message from all that is that really it's not the quantity of testing that seems to be so critical in contributing to glycemic improvement. And I think this, you can certainly see this in your own practice, Dr. Bailey. It's the, 
It's really the quality of testing. Is anyone doing anything with this data? And is, it, and is the data being collected in some sort of structured manner and displayed in such a way so that anybody can understand it and do something with it? Now, did you happen to be a fly on the wall in either the in the consultation room, maybe, and look at what was happening between doctor and patient and any of these things? Did you have kind of a, a view on how things went? Not exactly. We did have... I mean, we certainly had all medical records to look at. We actually had patients complete, at the end of every single quarterly visit, a short little questionnaire about what just happened. Did your uh, physician look at this data? Did you have a conversation about it? What was recommended, et cetera? Um, and in addition, we had a subset for which we conducted qualitative um, interviews at the end of the study, although we haven't published that yet. But clearly what we saw in that qualitative um, analyses were the degree to which um, actually both physicians and patients really had an aha experience that for so many of these, uh, especially of patients, this was really the first time blood glucose data made any sense where they could say, wow, so that's how food affects me or wow, that's what exercise really does. Um, it was really quite striking, mostly because of just that graphical display of data. How about from the physicians who participated? This was only primary care physicians who were uh, part of that training. For the majority of them, this was fairly new information, new training. They really um, had never been comfortable with blood glucose data and weren't exactly sure how you were supposed to use it. So for uh, helping them to follow a fairly simple algorithm you know, starting with let's look for hypoglycemia, let's look for fasting hyperglycemia, let's look for postprandial, and making sure they had the tools they needed and understanding of how to use medications, uh, lifestyle recommendations that made most sense to address those specific issues. This was, again, really quite a big surprise, and we found that many of them were really quite pleased to realize that they had such uh, not just new valuable tools, but that it could be used so easily and quickly. Now, to be a little cynical, did this, did this do anything to the time of the visit? Did the time with the patient increase, decrease, or remain the same? Did, did you just did you look at that? You know, darn, it's the one question that probably everybody asks, and I really wish we could have, we could have, and we and we we never actually looked at that. We weren't un, we were unable to look at that. Um, I can only tell you from some of the uh, informally from some of the qualitative data from that we conducted later that. We did have a number of physicians say, boy, this really, in terms of what I'm trying to do, it ends up saving me time. But it's hard to argue against the fact that if we're, if we're going to ask physicians to pay attention to blood glucose data at all, given that for many of them they were simply ignoring it because they simply didn't have time, it wasn't seen as a priority, they were primarily basing any decisions based on A1C data. If they had it, which, by the way, most of them, of course, didn't have immediate point-of-care A1C testing in the past, um, that is going to take some additional time. We think we did a good job of minimizing that, but it's hard to get around the fact that it takes time. Well, this is great because I think this is something that will address a lot of people's needs, help people focus, really get the value out of, of the testing that they've been doing for so many years, and might even reinforce more testing and, and greater knowledge on, on the part of our patients. So I'd really like to thank our guest, founder of the Behavioral Diabetes Institute in San Diego, California, Dr. William Polanski. 
Dr. Polanski, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Sure, it's been my great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.